Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and today I'm joined by Jamira Burley, social impact consultant and social justice activist at the Community Justice Reform Coalition, a national advocacy coalition that promotes and invests in evidence-based policies and programs to prevent gun violence and uplift criminal justice reform in urban communities of color. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So to start, could you tell us about how CJRC got started and the work you've been doing? Mm -hmm. So CJRC got started almost a year ago today. Our founder, Amber Goodwin, started CJRC after she got involved in the gun violence prevention movement and realized that many of the leaders in this space, particularly those at national organizations, didn't reflect the actual community that was mostly impacted by gun violence. And so she and a number of other organizers from around the country decided to start the Community Justice Reform Coalition with an eye to putting those who are most impacted at the center of change. And so over the last few months, we've been identifying and working with leaders around the country to intensify their leadership development skills while also raising awareness about what it means to put um, those who are closer to the problem closer to the solution. So could you tell us about the kind of policies and programs CJRC looks at? So first, one of the biggest things we do is we try to identify ambassador, or gun violence prevention ambassadors. So for the last year, we've been identifying celebrities, directors, artists, entertainers, everyday Americans who care about the issue of gun violence prevention and who have decided to come on board as an ambassador to us. And what that means is that they're going around in their communities, in their places and spaces at work, and really talking about what it means to be more engaged in the gun violence prevention movement while also promoting peace. In addition to that, what we do is we try to identify funding opportunities to other small and large scale organizations who are trying to pay their bills while also trying to save lives. And so we help to identify funding opportunities and filter those money, that money and funding to organizations who are creating great impact, but unfortunately aren't able to generate a lot of either foundational support or um, individual donor support. And lastly, what I help to over, uh, oversee is the Speakers Bureau. The Speakers Bureau is a collection of 20 activists around the country who are all leaders of their organizations, are long-term activists working at the intersection of gun violence prevention and criminal justice reform. And our job is really to help create space and opportunity to, one, train them on additional skills that they may need in order to effectively do their work, as well as looking for opportunities to elevate their work to a larger audience. So this is a pretty big question, but why do you think that gun violence exists so persistently in the United States versus anywhere else in the world? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, I get this question often. And I think depending on the community, to be absolutely honest, like if we're talking about gun violence, that is just like, um, or we're talking about street gun violence, if we're talking about mass shootings, if we're talking about domestic violence, I think the, the, the solutions are very different. But at the heart of it, I think we are dealing with very hurt people in many situations who unfortunately have not learned how to actually deal with their pain and trauma in a way that's actually conducive to moving their community in the right direction. And unfortunately, they turn around and hurt other people. Um, there's a phrase that we use often, which is that hurt people hurt people. Um, those who are often those who are victims of violence um, become perpetrators of violence. And so I think it's really about, one, us addressing the real trauma that we as a country have inflicted on our citizens, whether that's in urban communities, through police violence, through long-term um, systems of oppression that we've put on communities of color, 
or is it um, for white men who can, are more than likely to commit suicide is because they themselves are dealing with this over aggression of masculinity within our community. And we have really have lacked those spaces and places for them to be um, be who they are. And then lastly, when we think about domestic violence, I think we as a society have created a culture of both rape culture, but also a society where domestic abuse is one overlooked, if not sometimes praised based on the the systematic views in which we have on what women should do and what men should do. So I think at, but at the core of itself, we are really dealing with a communities of who are so oppressed, who are, who are dealing with so much trauma. And unfortunately, our government hasn't figured out how to respond to it without criminalizing more people or without totally siding with the gun manufacturers in the NRA. I'm glad you brought up criminalizing people. Not that that's a good thing, but um, just the subject. Could you go into a little more depth about what that means and how the policies the government has implemented do that? Oftentimes, community of colors are over-policed, right? Every time there's a problem, the solution to it is to put more police officers on the street to um, create more avenues in which we have to remove different resources from those communities. But really, police officers create more of a hostile environment for communities of color. Um, Not only that, you have communities of color who are lacking extreme, extreme, dire resources from everything from quality education to lack of jobs and opportunity to really dealing, or in many cases like Flint, Michigan, dealing with toxic water. And so when you couple all of that, you're really dealing with a community who haven't been able to fully tap into what it means to be a part of the American dream. And oftentimes, many of them have to do very bad things in order to to do the right thing, which is to feed their families. And unfortunately, the response from the government has always been, well, we need to lock our way out, we need to lock our way out of out of these issues. And none of that has actually either reduced violence or created safer spaces for community members to thrive. One of the things we try to draw the correlations between is that there's no way you can talk about urban violence without talking about the implications of mass incarceration has had for decades on those communities and how it has sucked away resources and funding from those communities and have only created spaces and places where their only option is either to do a really bad thing or a really worse thing. Do you believe that police and prisons should have any role in dealing with gun violence prevention? I think so. If we look at the very history of the police force, right, police are was actually founded out of slave catchers, those who have ran away from the slave um, slave plantation, and they created the system of individuals who would go out and catch these people. That is the very foundation of which our police force is built on. And if we think about prisons, right, prisons were originally created to deal with, was actually formulated out of um, mental institutions. We have moved away from mental health to just incarcerating people, and we actually haven't given them any any way or fashion in which to rehabilitate. So the very two systems that you speak of were created. One was created out of a very good reason. The other one was created was actually to do more harm and damage to a community that has already been oppressed. And so I think if we're going to talk about police and, and, and prison systems or jails, we have to, one, reevaluate what the purpose of those two institutions are for and whether or not they can be constructive in the creating safe environments or are they going to do more harm than good. For instance, after Columbine happened, one of the biggest solutions that came about was that, one, we should put metal detectors in schools and we should put school police officers on campuses. 
for one, that didn't happen in white communities. Columbine didn't get metal detectors. Columbine didn't get security. But what did happen in urban communities is that they got security and they got metal detectors. And since that time, since Columbine, more than one million young people, black and brown bodies, have been incarcerated because of small to non-consequential incidents that have happened in school. So I do think that there is a role to play in having individuals who uphold the law, but we also need to ensure that that law is just and it's and it's equal for all of its citizens and not just a chosen few. So you've talked a lot about mental health, which is really important given that most gun deaths are suicide. What policies do you advocate for to create better comprehensive mental health care access? A lot of the policies we um, support are policies that, that say, one, we need to invest more in mental health professionals in communities of color, particularly in schools. One of the things that happened after um, the budget deficit around for many public schools around the country is that they got rid of school psychologists. And so if, you, if we're going to think about how can we, one, identify these individuals prior to them hurting themselves or hurting someone else, we need to ensure that there is mental health professionals accessible to young to all people at every stage of their lives. And then also ensuring that we create space and opportunities for them, those folks to seek help that doesn't criminalize them. Oftentimes when folks either um, admit that they have thought about suicide or thought about harming someone else, they're automatically criminalized and arrested versus like taking actual action to provide them some level of service. And then looking at our mental, looking at our prison system, right, there are a lot of individuals who are in, in, in populations, in, in the public populations in prisons who need mental health. And so trying to ensure that we're not automatically criminalizing those who seek access to mental health and or who cause harm. Like, how do we correctly diagnose folks who have some sort of mental health problem without automatically criminalizing based on their skin color? So could you tell us a little bit more about your position on police demilitarization and how the state kind of sets the example for what guns mean in society? Yeah. So um, when I was at Amnesty prior to working with CJRC, we, did, we released a report called um, Deadly Force, which was a 50-state police analysis on the more than 18 of uh, the 16,000 police forces around the country. And what we found is that not one of the not none of the 50 states actually adhered to the international standards on the use of force, and most of them didn't even comply with our own internal constitutional review on the use of lethal force, which is that police officers should not use lethal force unless they are in an imminent danger, meaning they or someone in the immediate area is in imminent danger. Oftentimes, police officers are shooting folks as they're running away, as they're sitting still, as they're sitting in their car. And so what we mean when we talk about demilitizing the police force is ensuring that, one, they don't have weapons of war at their disposal to harm individuals and communities. Two, that they are upholding a level of, one, protecting communities, all communities, regardless of their white or black or communities of color, with respect and actually creating trustful relationships with members of the community. I mean, three is also ensuring that communities are not doing harm. There are a lot of policies around the country that allows for police officers to confiscate um, personal property without any sort of warrant or any sort of cause other than them thinking that a crime has been committed without any additional evidence. So there is a lot of policies that police officers operate by that actually make them do more harm than good to communities. And our job is to, one, raise awareness about what those policies are, but also asking for a more comprehensive look at how police the role of police officers in communities and ensuring that they're actually there to serve the communities and not police them and or to cause any physical or mental harm. So another proposal that escalates militarization, but in a way I don't think we've quite seen before, is arming teachers. 
Could you tell us about why this is problematic and the effect it would have on students of color? Yeah, no, it's extremely problematic. We know students of color are more than likely to be suspended, ex- I mean, expelled, more likely than their white counterparts for nonviolent in- incidents. So imagine if a teacher officer had a gun in the classroom, what that would mean for a student of color. Also, police officers, the reason why they shoot so multiple times so often is because of their lack of actually hitting a target and their accuracy in hitting a target. So imagine a regular teacher having a gun shooting into an environment where there are kids everywhere, the likelihood of them actually hitting the suspect. Another reason why it's a bad idea is because that proposals that are being put forth is that everyone in the school would know where the gun is. So if everyone in the school knows where the gun, you're now making it accessible for a student who may want to cause harm to themselves or cause harm to others, access to a gun that they normally would not have. The last reason I would say is that the last thing you need is a teacher walking around a building with a gun when a SWAT team is entering a school trying to take down a shooter. They're now putting themselves at harm's risk because, as we've seen before, police officers are often more likely to react by shooting than they are to react with actually de-escalating the situation. And how are students or parents who are in the building supposed to know that the teacher is doing it to protect them versus doing it because that, the per- that person is a shooter? There's no way to know. Something that's been picked up by a lot of activists is how the Parkland students have received a lot of support from mainstream figures, while Black Lives Matter activists who have been doing similar work for years now didn't receive any of that support. Could you tell us about this dynamic? I think it's a very fine line that all of us as as people of color activists who have been in this work for years, if not decades, are trying to balance is recognizing that we're not shaming the Parkland kids. I think everyone realized like they went through a very traumatic incident. School violence is a problem that needs to be solved. And we're definitely supportive of like any funding that they get in order to ensure that these things don't happen again. But when you are an activist, particularly an activist of color and have been fighting for gun violence reform in your community for decades, and you have never received the type of response that the Parkland students are getting, it makes you feel invisible. It makes you feel like your body, your trauma, the violence that has been inflicted on you and your community is non-existent. It's not sexy enough for mass media to care about. It's not sexy enough for celebrities to care about. It almost makes it seem as if Black trauma is not real trauma and somehow we're responsible for what happens in our communities and not the systems in place that have oppressed us for so long. So I think we're definitely disappointed by those who have come out of the woodwork to give money and give support to those students when they were largely silenced in the face of everyday kids dying in the streets or dying in their schools around the country, particularly those in urban communities. So we're not saying that those students shouldn't get funding. We're just saying that America needs to care about all of its, its people regardless if they're black, brown, or white. And we need to ensure that anyone who is harmed due to violence, that they have the support mechanism either through funding or other forms of support in order to make their community safer. I think that's a really great point. But when we talk about changing this, I think a lot of the discussions end up centering whiteness. You know, how do we win over white people and make them care when that's not really the point of anti-racist work. It's to improve the lives of people of color and better situations for black and brown bodies. How do you think we tackle this issue of the violence that's enacted systemically against black and brown bodies being ignored without centering whiteness? 
we do it by what CJRC is doing, which is ensuring that the most marginalized communities are put in positions of power where their stories, their solutions are elevated to those who can listen. Oftentimes, the solutions for white communities are not good solutions for black communities. Last year, one of the biggest policy recommendations was that no fly, no buy, right? So those, in theory, it makes sense that those who are on the terrorist watch list, those who cannot actually get on physically on a plane should not be able to purchase a gun. But when you put that into context of knowing the history of our country and how it has been oppressive of all minority groups, we know that there are people on that list that should not be on that list. So how do you reverse that ideology and ensure that the solutions for white communities are not harming those of communities of color? And the reason why we center marginalized groups is that we realize when you create solutions for the most marginalized within our society, it has to put, it, it more than likely will bleed into other communities and be a, it'd be a universal solution. And so we're, we're trying to ensure that by not centering white people, by centering the stories of those who are most impacted, while also just trying to work with our white colleagues. We know that Unfortunately, smaller organizations of color and communities do not have the resources to get national attention. And so we're almost forced to work with those groups and we're forced to kind of help to move them in the direction of including more diverse stories and and experiences in their work. But it's hard. I, I don't have the solution. I think we're constantly trying to figure it out, but we have to continue to hold those who for instance, after Parkland, one of the things that I think needs to really be critical, we need to all be critical of is asking the folks who receive so much funding is what communities are you actually working in? There needs to be a level of transparency that I don't don't think has ever come to the gun violence prevention space. Who are the organizations receiving funding and what communities are they actually impacting and working in? So we can have a full breadth of knowledge of and realizing that the scope of resources are not equally distributed across the country. So what can our listeners do to help join the fight to prevent gun violence and enact criminal justice reform for urban communities of color? I think that the the most important thing that they can do is look locally, right? So instead of automatically wanting to get funding or organize with a national organization, you should look internally in your community. What organizations are doing the work? Do you have, do you have time to physically volunteer, either through phone or in person? Do so. Or if you have a couple of dollars that you can send to that organization, small donations to neighborhood organizations will literally decide whether or not that organization keeps the lights on. And so I would definitely say look internally, but also start asking questions. When people say that this is a solution, ask why or how is this impacting marginalized communities? When organizations say that they are working for this, ask why, particularly those of the organizations that have so much national um, kind of clout. Just continue to ask questions and find spaces and opportunities to to volunteer or donate locally. One of the reasons why the NRA has been able to win for so long is that guns for most people are a number one issue versus gun violence prevention is not a number one issue. So we have to make school safety, neighborhood safety a number one priority, and we need to start voting based on that priority. Could you tell us a little bit more about how we change that and make it a number one priority, especially in the upcoming midterms? I mean, the key is that individual people need to say that this is our our voting issue, the issue that we're going to vote on, meaning that, that when they go to town halls, when they meet the legislators, when they decide to vote that this is on, this is a part of the portfolio of their elected official. Oftentimes, gun violence rarely comes up in, in local election debates or even the presidential debate. And so we have to continue to ask each other, ask, ask more of our local officials to make sure that um, neighborhood safety and school safety 
as a priority. But I think it, it starts with the individual first saying that this is their number one issue that they're going to vote on and that they're going to hold their elected official accountable for. The national organizations are already doing the work of like promoting it and pushing it out. But we need regular people to say that this is our issue. Now, lastly, what can folks do to get involved with CJRC? Go directly to our website, right? We have a a number of tons of opportunities for you to connect directly with our fellows, to connect directly with the organizations that we partner with. We're more than willing to direct you in the right direction on local organizations in your community. But you can also decide to, um, you can go to our website and become a Peacemaker Ambassador. And all you have to do is go to www.communityjustice.com rc.org and that's communityjusticerc.org and you can sign up to be a peacemaker and a peace ambassador and we can help to funnel resources and opportunities to you as well as create space and opportunity for you to be a part of a, a national conversation around making our communities and schools safe. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's really great to see the work you're doing, especially with everything that's going on now. No, no problem. Thank you for having me. And hopefully I was able to contribute something worthwhile to your listeners. No, absolutely. And to our listeners, if you want to hear more conversations like this, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.